You may be seated. You want to be turning back to the book of Romans, chapter 1. Gospels, Acts, Romans. Easy to find. This is only the third sermon in our new series on the book of Romans. We spent two sermons in the introduction. We will look at the theme verses for the epistle today, verses 16 to 17. But I'm going to read from verse 1 through 17 just to set it in context. Epistle written by... Paul, formerly Saul of Tarsus, who was seeking to destroy the church, but by God's grace, arrested on the Damascus road, saved, set apart for the gospel, made an apostle. So he gives some of that testimony and then lays forth in the book the gospel that he preaches and the difference that that gospel makes in our lives when God is at work in us. But this is God's word, verse 1 of Romans chapter 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Christ Jesus. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of His Son that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers. Asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we might be, may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that, that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Thus far God's word. Let's pray together. Lord, it is your word, and your spirit must apply your word to our hearts. Maybe to some, as we sang, to give life. The rest of us to grow in grace. But our prayer is that you'd be at work. Help me to preach your word. 
Help me to get out of the way. May your word run and be glorified. Help us to hear it as your word, pointing us to you through your Son, that by the power of the Spirit, we might respond rightly to it. So bless the preaching and the hearing of your holy word. We pray for it. We cry out for it. We need it. We trust it. We ask it. In Jesus' holy name. Amen. Not one of them thought they would die that night. Almost a hundred people in the seeming security of their own home. Some very young, some very old, some just married, some married for decades, some retired, some on vacation, visiting friends or family, some believers, and others not believers. They all went down in the collapse of the Champlain Towers south in Surfside, Florida on June 24th at 1.25 a.m. You see, reality tends to slap us in the face sometimes. We saw this when we studied the book of Ecclesiastes that Solomon was continually reminding us that, that we live in a fallen world. We live in a world that suffers miseries of being a fallen world. And that in this fallen world, sort of the preeminent characteristic of life here is death. We try to overlook it. We don't want to talk about it. But it is a reality for each one of us. And each one of us will walk through that door one day. How many of them in that tow- those towers had heard the gospel, but not acted upon it. How many of them, and it's possible in America these days, how many of them had relatives or friends who were Christians, but they had never heard the gospel? How many of them had heard the gospel and responded to it? And we're in covenant with God in their household. See, we don't know. But this will be an important message for you today. It's an important message for me today. It's an important message for all of us. Because if you heed what we see in verses 16 and 17, you will be ready. You will be ready. Do you have ears to hear? Pray that you do. And if you really get what Paul is saying in these two verses, and rest fully in Christ for your salvation, you will be ready for that day when it comes. And you will also be eager to tell others how they can be ready for that day. The most important thing on this planet is the mission of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the mission of the Lord Jesus Christ is to make disciples of all nations. And that happens by the gospel going forth into our lives and through our lives to others. 
And we see that example by Paul today. As I said, we've had two messages in the introduction, just getting our way into the book. We saw Paul briefly introduce himself and God's call upon him. He begins to talk about the gospel, the gospel concerning Christ, son of David, son of God, raised from the grave on the third day, the one who died for our sins, that he came, Paul... Jesus came and Paul's apostleship was about bringing us to an obedience that flows from faith, a joyful love of Jesus that works a growing obedience in our hearts. And he's thankful that he's getting finally to come to them, hopefully, and he's laying out and writing the gospel that he preaches and telling them that he's eager to come preach that gospel to them, to believers as well as unbelievers. And we talked about that last week. But last week's text finished with, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. And this week, in this theme set of verses, he's going to tell us why he was eager. So let's look at that and see. The main point I want you to take home today as we look at verses 16 and 17. Remember, these are the very same verses that Martin Luther said, when he understand them, the gates of paradise swung open to him and he walked through. But the main point will be embrace and boldly proclaim the gospel because it is the power of God and it grants us the righteousness of God. First, embrace and boldly proclaim the gospel because it is the power of God. Look at a couple of things under this verse. Look at verse 16 again. Look at the first thing he says. He says, I'm eager. He said in verse 15, I'm eager. And now he says, he tells us why. See that little word for, connecting, explaining. He says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. I am not ashamed of the gospel of God. Because Paul has experienced God's grace. Because God has had mercy on the chief of sinners. That's what he calls himself. He is enthusiastic to take that gospel to other peoples. He has embraced the gospel. And to embrace something is to accept it or support it willingly and enthusiastically. He was a bold enemy. He was a blasphemer and a hater of Christ. And Christians. He wanted to destroy the church, but because of God's mercy and grace to him and giving him a new heart, the Spirit working in his heart through the gospel, Christ revealing himself to him. He's now a lover of Christ and of Christians, and he's a lover of the gospel and the lost. And he's now a bold witness. He's not ashamed. He's not ashamed. What, what, Think about this just for a minute. What happens when you're ashamed of something? You put it on the news. You eagerly tell other people about it. You don't, right? We hide it when we are ashamed of it. But when we're not ashamed of it, what do we do with it? uh, Parents of your children? Hey, and really bad, grandparents. You're not ashamed of those grandbabies. Everybody doesn't know it, but yours are the cutest and smartest in the world. And they're going to hear about it. Why? Because you're excited about them. You delight in them. You love them. You want to flood your Facebook feed with them. And that's okay. It's a good thing. 
When we are ashamed of things, we hide them. When we're not ashamed of things, we put them on display. We brag on them. We talk about them. We recommend them to others. See, Paul is not ashamed. And the other apostles are not ashamed. Think about the transformation of the gospel in the other apostles' lives. Think about when Christ was crucified, they, they were out boldly saying, He's going to be raised from the grave and we're, He's the Son of God, right? No, they were hiding, cowering, trembling, and scared every time somebody knocked on the door. What changed them? The resurrection. They saw the resurrected Christ. And now suddenly they too were bold. They've overcome. They've gone from cowering in fear to seeing the risen Christ to boldly saying to the authorities in Acts 4.20, it's not possible or it is impossible for us not to speak about the things we've seen and heard. To the same people that had Jesus crucified, they say, do what you will. We will continue to speak of what we've seen and heard. This part of this is convicting, isn't it? Because we have to ask ourselves, am I ashamed of the gospel? I'll leave that between you and the Lord. But Paul says why he's not ashamed. Watch this. He says he's not ashamed. And look, there's another little connection there. I'm not ashamed of the gospel for... He's telling us why. <clears throat> it is the power of God for, the, for, the salvation, for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. It, what? It refers back to gospel. It, the gospel, is the power of God for the salvation of those who believe. This is where the power lies. This is what will cause the effect. It's not us. It's in the gospel and in the spirit applying that gospel to the hearts of people that hear it. See, the power is not in my story or your story. And sometimes we're bad about sharing our testimony without actually sharing the gospel. We assume people know what we're going to say. We don't share the word. We don't share the gospel. We'll, we'll tell them what happened to us. And when you do it that way, especially in our little post-postmodern environment, you might get, oh, that's good for you. I'm happy for you, but that's not for me. And I'm here to tell you, it is for you. It is for everybody. The gospel is the power of God. It what is the message he has, he has given and the message He uses to save us and through that message he urges us indeed go and read Acts 17 30 and 31 he commands all people everywhere to repent because he's given his son to live die be buried be raised for us and he's committed the judgment to the son and he will judge the world through the son that he has raised from the dead eminently faithful and provable by history you cannot disprove it. The gospel is the power of God. See, there's an effective and transforming power that accompanies the faithful proclamation of the gospel. The Holy Spirit takes the word, remember we sang it, and gives us life. 
See, the general call, what I'm doing this morning, is I'm proclaiming the gospel to every one of you. I'm urging you to come to Christ. I'm asking you to consider what I'm saying. Look and see if it's the word, and it is, and turn to Jesus, who's been raised from the dead. But in the context of that, every time the gospel is preached, the Spirit is working in particular hearts to bear fruit, maybe planting seeds, maybe reaping a harvest of faith, maybe growing us in grace. But the gospel is God's word about God's Son and what God's Son has done to save God's people. And so it is the power of God. Now it doesn't immediately affect salvation in everyone that hears it. Remember, gospel call. We have to bring our doctrine of election into the picture. And we have to remember God's timing. There may be somebody sitting in this room today who says, that's, that's crazy. That's a lot of foolishness. And of course, Paul said that's what you would say if you say that in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. But three weeks down the line, they might, because God is at work, might be in another context with a better preacher preaching the gospel or something or somebody talking to them one-on-one where it may, suddenly it makes sense. And if it suddenly makes sense, that's because the Spirit is at work with the power of God. Making it make sense. See, we can't, as at me preaching or you sharing, we don't have the power to convert the heart. But we have the message that God uses to convert the heart. And our responsibility is not to convert the heart, but to share the message. To get the gospel right, because there's a wrong gospel out there, to get the gospel right and to get it out. So the gospel is the power of God. It is what God uses to save souls. We speak, but God saves. Effectual calling, we'll talk about that when we get to chapter 8. See, what's happening here in this verse, if I was just going to light down in these verses and I was in a place where nobody had ever heard of the book of Romans, I would have to do a lot more work to preach these verses. But these are the introductory verses to the, to the book that we're going to spend a lot more time talking about this stuff. So, and that's a blessing for you because you won't be here three hours this morning. We'll talk about this stuff more later, right? But look at Paul. Paul says the first reason he's not ashamed is because he knows this is God's message about God's Son and the message God uses to save His people. He knows He's just a conduit through whom that message flows. So His, his purpose, his, his pursuit is to get that gospel out knowing that God uses it. I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for the salvation automatically of everybody who's ever lived. Now, there's a condition to the covenant and its faith. And he said, it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. But everyone who believes, I haven't done this in a while, but do you remember the reformer's definition of saving faith? Do you remember? This would be the Bible's definition of saving faith. There's three elements that have to take place in a heart for them to truly believe according to what the Bible means when it says believe. So there are three elements, and the first is knowledge. You have to know what the gospel is. Somebody has to share the gospel with you, or you read it from a book or, or whatever. But you have to have knowledge of the facts 
of the gospel. This is where so many appeals fall short. The second element of true saving faith is assent or believing the facts. You have to believe the facts of the gospel that Christ died for our sins, He was buried, He was raised from the grave. But when somebody hears the gospel and they believe the facts, sometimes we, in the church we stop there. Do you believe this is true? Yes. You're saved. Never doubt it. I don't want to offend you, but the devil believes that's true. In fact, he knows it's true. But he's not a Christian. And maybe that will help you. There's a third essential element to true and saving faith, and it is, it is trust. It is, it is dependence. It is reliance upon. It, 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 is, it is, is committing oneself to the truth of Christ being the Savior. See, I'm sure all of y'all believe this chair would hold you up if you sat in it. But none of you are sitting in it. But you are at least trusting a chair in here. You see the difference? You can believe this chair will hold you up, but you're not trusting it if you're not sitting in it. You can believe that Jesus is the Son of God who died and was buried and raised from the grave. That won't, that's not enough to save you without that trust, entrusting of yourself to Him. That, that's what the Bible means by believing. It's a trust. It's a reliance upon. It's deeper than just mental assent. And it's not always conveyed by somebody just repeating a prayer. The, God requires repentance and faith. Now, what He requires, He grants through the preaching of the gospel and Spirit's power and making us alive again. But He says, This gospel is the power of God for the salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek or the Gentile. That's really the whole world. To, the, to a Jew, Jew and Greek encompasses the whole world. Jew and Gentile whole world. Think about it. There's only two groups of people to the Jew. The Jews and the Gentiles. The Jews and the non-Jews. It's the same. I want you to notice something that you may have been influenced by some well-meaning evangelicals that would say that the Jews don't need the gospel. They're already in. No. This, this gospel is for both Jew and Gentile because as we'll see in chapter 3, all are under sin. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. None good. All need a Savior. None can be saved by the law. And the Gentiles are grafted into the blessing of the Jews. And that's a lot to talk about. We'll talk about that more later. But Paul is not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the Jew first and also through the Greek, for everyone who believes, all those that God is at work in, who He grants and brings to faith, Yes, you, to be saved, you must believe in Christ. And everyone who trusts in Christ is saved. And, and that's because God's at work in them. But this is the power of God. This very simple gospel. I'm, I'm talking all around it this morning, aren't I? What is the gospel? What is the gospel? What is the good news of salvation? What is this message that God empowers to bring about faith and repentance and hearts to save the souls of His people? Is the message you are good and just be as good as you can and that'll be enough? Is the gospel you and what you can do? Is it mostly Jesus and a little bit of you? 
Well, it, don't, it doesn't take much strychnine to be deadly in a big glass of water. No, it's Jesus. Jesus is the gospel. What does Paul say in the Word? What does John say? What do all Peter say? What do the apostles say? The good news is the good news of Jesus and what He's done to save His people. Yes, there's a required response of us to turn and trust in Jesus. But the gospel is Christ came to live for us. He didn't just come from heaven to the cross. He came to live, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But He, he was born... He lived under the law. He fulfilled all righteousness. He died on the cross to pay the penalty, not for his sin, for ours. He was buried. He truly died and was under the power of death for a time. And the third day he was raised from the grave, born of a virgin, successful life, fulfilling all righteousness, successful death, paying for the sins of his people, all proved true by his resurrection. His current reign, taking his gospel to the ends of the earth. And he's coming again someday. But Paul said, here's the gospel, if you want it in a nutshell. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and he was raised the third day. Kids, y'all know the nutshell in John 3.16. I hope the adults do too. For God so loved the world. Translation, here's how you should read that. This is how God loved the world. God loved the world in this way that He sent His only begotten Son. Wow, that, see, Jesus is the message. And we know the Son lived, died, was raised. We know God gave His only begotten Son that whosoever, Jew or Gentile, believes in Him shall not perish the bad news, but have eternal life. See, the bad news is that we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What do you mean? None of us has kept God's commandments in thought, word, and deed. None of us can save ourselves. Sin is a violation of God's law and all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Everyone needs a Savior, even you. And hopefully God's at work, so you say, yes, especially me. The Savior is Jesus. He lived for us, He died for us, He was raised for us, and the free gift of salvation is in Him. You don't have to earn it. You can't earn it. You can only mess it up. God says, believe this. Turn, change of heart. Turn and trust in Christ. Receive the free gift of salvation. We'll see that free gift uh, terminology used as we study throughout Romans in chapter 3, in chapter 6. See, salvation is not based on you and what you do. It's based on Christ and what He's done and you by God's grace because He's worked in you to bring you from death to life to receive that gift. And... Uh, are you trusting in Jesus and Jesus alone this morning? Not in, yes, I'm trusting in Jesus, but I hope I've been good enough. That second part, just kind of edit that out and take it away. Trust in Christ and Christ alone. Yes, those God saves, he, also, he justifies, He also sanctifies, He grows us in grace, He makes us different, but that's His work of grace as well. Paul's saying this gospel, this good news about Christ, this is the power of God. And we take hold of that salvation and that power through faith, which is a gift of God, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Have you believed in trusting in Jesus? Have you embraced the gospel in Christ, then it's due to it being the power of God and the Spirit working in your heart. 
So the first reason Paul is not ashamed is this. The gospel, the good news about Jesus, is the power of God for salvation. So he wants to make sure he gets it right and gets it out. And the second reason he gives us he's not ashamed is because of the righteousness of God. Look at it in verse 17. Embrace and boldly proclaim the gospel because it grants the righteousness of God. This is mind-blowing truth. This is amazing, amazing truth. He says this, For in it, the it is the gospel, in it the righteousness of God is revealed for faith, from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Yes, and, and, it, and it is the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel in that Christ had to die. There had to be a debt paid for sin. God's law had been violated and somebody had to pay for that if His people were going to be saved. And since we cannot pay for that, He sent His Son to pay for that. God is righteous and holy and pure and can have no fellowship with sin. His righteous and just response is judgment. But thankfully, He's a gracious and merciful God who has sent His Son to save His people. So primarily, it's, it's not speaking about the inherent righteousness, though, by which God is righteous. When it says the righteousness is revealed, and we'll see, we'll talk about faith in a minute. <clears throat> From faith and for faith. And, and He seals it up with Habakkuk 2.4 there at the end. He's talking about the righteous status required. The righteousness that God requires if we're going to have fellowship with Him and that He grants through the gospel. The righteousness that is required by God, a righteous status before God. What does that mean? Every one of us, if we're going to be saved, has to have a record before the throne of God that we have kept His law in thought, word, and deed. And in and of ourselves, none of us has that. So we need a different record than the one we have earned. So we need this record of having kept God's law, this righteousness that we don't have, a righteousness that is established by Jesus and given as a gift to render His people acceptable, not guilty, righteous in His sight. It's Christ's righteousness that is given to the believer, that is credited or imputed. The righteousness of God being the righteousness that God gives to those, that God credits to those who trust in Jesus. We need cleansing and forgiveness, but that gets us to ground zero. We also need a record of righteousness to be justified. It can't be a legal fiction. There has to be a true righteousness for God to declare us righteous, which is what justification is. So I'm going to pick at our hymn that we sang earlier, just a little bit, when it said, This is all my righteousness, nothing but the blood of Jesus. That's not true. I don't know if we want to change those lyrics. This is all my forgiveness. This is all my cleansing. All of that you could say His sacrifice. But it's not all my righteousness. 
I need a positive righteousness if I'm going to be made right with God. And that's what God grants through Jesus. Look, when, listen, whenever you're reading your Bible and you see something you don't know what it means, here's a couple of rules for you. Let clear text interpret the unclear and compare Scripture with Scripture. And especially within the same author, how does he use this phrase in other places or this word in other places? What does Paul mean when he says the righteousness of God? Now, look at, I'll just show you a few verses. You can go study these. We can talk about them if we need to. But when Paul says the righteousness of God from faith and for faith, and we'll talk about that in a minute, what does he mean by the righteousness of God? Not primarily the inherent righteousness of God, but the righteousness that God requires and grants, a righteous status with God. Look what he says in Romans 10.3. Talking about the Jews, and when we get there, we'll talk more about this. But he says, he was one, remember, he knows what he's talking about. He says, being ignorant of the righteousness of God. Now stop a minute. Did they not know God was righteous? Yes, but they didn't know how he was going to save. And Paul says, being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. This is just a general statement. You know this is not true of all the Jews because some of the Jews, one of the Jews is the one that's writing the book and the apostles are all Jews and the early church was primarily Jewish. But in general, being ignorant of the righteousness of God or the fact that God would provide the righteousness we need through the Messiah that was coming or had come depending on your point in history They were seeking to establish their own righteousness by their keeping of the law, and they did not submit to God's righteousness. So you can see there that he's hinting at this righteousness of God is something other than just the attribute of God, but it's a a God that belongs to God, and it's something that God gives. Look at Philippians 3.9. It becomes even clearer that Paul's desire was. He didn't trust in his religious pedigree. I'll let you go read it in context. But his desire was to be found in Jesus. Verse 3, I mean verse 9 of chapter 3. His goal was to be found in Him. Now watch how he describes that. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. Now watch, comma, apposition. He's going to explain more what he means. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. It's kind of, you can almost lay that right beside our verse 17 in chapter 1 for a little bit of explanation. One of my favorite verses that has been since I was converted, 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, He made Him who, to be sin who knew no sin. He, Jesus was sinless and pure. He fulfilled God's law and thought, word, and deed. He didn't have any sin of His own, but He took our guilt. Our guilt was imputed to Him that His righteousness might be imputed to us. Look how Paul speaks about it. For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that, purpose statement, in Him we might become the righteousness of God. That double imputation. Our sin going to Christ, His righteousness then coming to us and credited to our account. See how He uses that, the righteousness of God? Not as God's inherent righteousness, but the righteousness that God requires of those who would be right with Him or in fellowship with Him. The, the, the keeping of His law in thought, word, and deed. 
He says, two things are going on. Christ was made sin so that he could pay the penalty for our sin so that then his righteousness, which is called here the righteousness of God, that God has provided, that God grants through his Son that we might become the righteousness of God. One more text, Romans 3, 20 and 24. For by the works of the law, no human being, did that leave anybody out? No human being will be justified or declared righteous in his sight. Since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Look at the contrast. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe and are good enough. I'm sorry, did that, was that Jeff's translation? Yeah, the period is after believe. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. See, Paul is explaining later exactly what he's talking about earlier. It's a forensic righteousness. It's a righteousness that comes from outside you that you don't have. It's the gift of God. It is, it is the faithfulness to the law that we have not exhibited. He goes on in verse, look in verse, uh, into 22 and 23. For there is no distinction... In other words, same gospel for everybody, same salvation for everybody. There is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace, there's that word, as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So the righteousness of God here is that righteous status before God that we don't have, but that Christ has achieved and that we get through faith in Him. So by God's grace that He's at work in you and you trust in Christ, a lot more is being done than your record of sin being obliterated. Your sins were nailed to the cross with Jesus. That record is obliterated and gone. As far as the east is from the west, in the heart of the sea, right? Psalm 103. It's gone. But you need more than just a cleansing. You need a clothing. So this righteousness of God, the righteousness of Christ, this righteous status that He achieved, this record is credited to you. So that your sin is washed away, His righteousness is your record. If you're trusting in Jesus this morning, even if you're struggling this morning, your record before God and His judgment bar is perfect keeping of the law and thought, word, and deed because your record is Christ's record. I should encourage you this morning. He says, for all who believe. Look back in verse 17. It says it a little different way. For in, for in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God we've talked about, is revealed from faith and for faith. Boy, if you like, if you like reading commentaries, you can go read on that one and see all kinds of opinions and all kinds of speculation and all kinds of not listening to Paul in other places when he's telling us what he believes. At least that's my opinion. I don't throw all of what I think are the false opinions at you in a sermon. If you want to go dig them out, you can. But when he says, from faith, for faith. If you have an ESV, look at the footnote, right? In the footnote it says, beginning and ending in faith. I think Schreiner's a little bit better, and I think he's more accurate when he says this means by faith from first to last. 
And there are other Greek constructions like this using other words that show that this is as an emphatic form. And this emphatic form is simply communicating to us that this righteousness comes to us by faith from first to last. Sola fide, justification by faith alone. Being declared righteous on the basis of God's Son and His righteousness imputed to us and received by faith. From faith and for faith, beginning and ending in faith, better by faith from first to last. I think it's the best way to understand that. And he seals it all up with quoting Habakkuk. That's where this quote is coming from. It says, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Literally, I think, I think Luther was right about the translation of all of this. And I think what is being said here is the one who by faith is righteous shall live. That shall live, same as Leviticus 18.5 about the one who keeps the law shall live. This is the eschatological life. This is the covenant life. This is what we think of as eternal life. If anyone could keep the law in thought, word, and deed, they would live on that basis, but they can't. Only one's ever done it, and it was Jesus. So the God's way of saving people is to make them righteous by faith and grant them eternal life that way. John 3.16, all the other verses we've quoted. The one righteous by faith shall live. You can see what Paul is telling us. He's, he's saying, this is a summary of what I'm going to explain to you as we dig on through the book. We're going to speak a lot more about this justification by faith alone. We're going to speak a lot more about this righteousness of God and righteousness that is credited, about this gospel that offers a free gift to us of salvation and eternal life. But we can see from this presentation in verses 16 and 17 that what we need is both a cleansing from sin and a clothing in righteousness, if you want to use the clothing metaphor. And there's a beautiful picture of this in the Old Testament in Zechariah chapter 3. How do I find Zechariah? Go from Matthew to Malachi and you'll be there. It's on the other side of Malachi or Malachi if you think he was the only Italian prophet. <clears throat> but look at this picture. Joshua was high priest of the returning exiles after the exile and we won't go into all that. I love his name, Joshua. Hebrew, you know what that is? Yeshua. You know who Yeshua is? Jesus. See that foreshadowing even in his name? But Zechariah 3, 1 to 5, it says this. And God showed Zechariah. It says, Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of God. And Satan. What does Satan mean? Accuser, right? Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you. Notice who the angel is, by the way. The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord has chosen Jerusalem. Rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? 
Now, see, just in Joshua's case, Satan was right. Look what it says in verse 3. Now, Joshua was standing before the angel clothed in filthy garments. Think excrement as far as I'm going with that. Vile, filthy, defiled garments representing, let's just say, a life that falls short. Just like every one of the rest of our lives. See, the devil was right about what was true about Joshua, but he forgot God and his covenant and his salvation and what God was doing. Now look what, look what God does as a picture. This is a picture of justification that we've been talking about. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, so in other words, he just rebuked Satan, and here we go. Now watch, watch this beautiful picture. Remove the filthy garments from him. And he said to him, Behold, notice what the garments represented. I have taken your iniquity away from you. Who was active in that picture? Defending his people and cleansing his people. God. God. Joshua was trusting by God's grace. And this is why he says, Remove the filthy garments from him. And he said to him, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you. And that's all. I'm done. Now watch. And I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with the garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by, think his side, to defend him. That's a beautiful picture of what happened to you if you're trusting in Jesus. Not only were your filthy garments taken away, Christ put them on and took them to the cross and paid the penalty for them so that his pure vestments... His righteousness, the true righteousness of the true high priest could be imputed or given to His people. Great picture there. Listen, look how loving and gracious your God is. Look at it. That He would choose a people and give that people to His Son and send His Son to save them by living in fulfillment of all righteousness, by dying to pay the penalty for their sin, by rising from the grave, ascending into heaven and coming again someday. Look how loving and gracious God is. And even the repentance and faith that He requires of us, He works in us by His Spirit, applying the gospel to us. Everything He requires, He grants a full and free salvation so that we are both cleansed and clothed anew through faith in Jesus. See, if you're trusting in Jesus this morning, your sin is gone. Past, present, and future. It was all future when He died for it. And He took it to the cross. And at just the right time, He sat you under the gospel, our sovereign God. And He gave you ears to hear. He brought you from death to life so that it made sense to you and you turned and trusted in Jesus and He stands by your side. 
to defend you as your king and see you all the way home. What a gracious and loving Savior. I was a mess. I, like Paul, was his enemy. I wanted nothing to do with Jesus. I would mouth talk it, but I wanted nuts. certainly didn't want anything to do with those crazy church people. But God, he made me one of them. And that's all his grace, and the same for you. If you're trusting in Jesus this morning, you've experienced the power of God. God's righteousness has been credited to you through faith. And you have eternal life by God working faith in you. Sometimes that faith is faith that feels like it's barely hanging on. Other days you feel strong. Most days are somewhere in the middle. See, it's not the amount of our faith. It's whether or not we have true faith. Because the object is what makes it valuable. And that object is Christ who has lived for us and died for us and been raised for us. And I plead with you this morning to not look away, think away, move away from this message. I plead with you, if you're not trusting in Jesus, that you repent, that you turn and trust in Jesus today. Please hear me. God has given proof by raising Him from the dead. You will stand before Him someday. And yet He has come to graciously save. So turn and trust Him. Sunday, October the 8th, 1871. D.L. Moody preached to his biggest congregation yet. And he preached the gospel to them from the book of Matthew. And the title of his sermon was, What Shall I Do with Jesus Which Is Called Christ? And after he preached that sermon... He told them to take it home with them for a week. And that way they would talk more about it next week. To take it home and consider what he had preached to them. And they would talk more that week. And that very night was the night of the Chicago fire. Hundreds perished in the Chicago fire. Some who had been sitting in that very church when he preached the gospel. And he was broken by that. And he said, never again, never again will I encourage people to wait. But I will urge them to come. See, in that Chicago fire, how many heard the gospel but did not embrace Christ? See, this highlights the importance of the rich treasure we have in Christ and what we'll be delving into as we expand upon what these verses say and talk more about the righteousness of God and faith and all of these things. But it, it, it highlights the importance of the rich treasure we have in Christ, of His gospel, the power we have, salvation, righteousness, a free gift, all by faith. And I just want you to take away two things with you today. And the first one is, I, re I plead with you to rest fully in Christ for your salvation. To see in His death your complete atonement. A perfect atonement. Your sins dealt with. To see in His life a perfect, full righteousness that is credited to you. His resurrection for your justification. 
It's all true. Turn to Christ. Listen, some of you may be believers and sort of growing cold or what the old timers call backsliding. Return, repent, renew that faith commitment to Christ. Don't play with Him. And don't play with sin just thinking it's not that big a deal. He'll forgive me. Run to Christ. Rest fully in His, in his dying for your sin. Believe fully in His clothing you in His righteousness. Depend upon the power of His Spirit. Seek Him in His Word so that you might live a life that glorifies Him. Rest fully in Christ for your salvation. Rest all of your hope in Him. Turn to Christ today. Kids, turn to Christ today. Teenagers, turn to Christ today. 20-something, 30-something, 40-something, married, single, whatever your spot is. Turn to Christ today. Receive the righteousness of God. Here's my second exhortation to you and to us who know Christ. Shout it from the housetops. Repent of gospel shame. What do you mean? Silence. Fear of man. Embrace Christ and His gospel and the joy that comes to you through it. And listen, be a super spreader. Be infected by this gospel virus. And put it on everybody you come into contact with. If you can. Be eager. Not ashamed. Bold for Jesus. Like we see Exampled in Paul. Cling tightly to Christ. Don't let the world, the flesh, and the devil, your enemy, steal your assurance and joy. If you get your eyes off Jesus for your hope and you start hoping in yourself, or you start hoping in anything else, it's going to dwindle. Put your eyes back on Christ. Cling tightly to Christ. Enjoy the fullness of His salvation and the joy that comes from it because these are the fount from which flows great peace and joy, yes, but also bold proclamation. The ne- you know, the evil one knows if he can wreck your assurance, he can wreck your testimony. So he tries to get your eyes off Christ and on to yourself. I want to recommend something to you. Uh, really, I am done. I'm going to read this and I'm done. But I want to recommend Thomas Brooks lived in the 17th century. He wrote something called Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. And I'm just going to give you a quote for that. I put it in your bulletins. Um, and it'll be on the screen. But listen to what he says. The first device that Satan has to keep souls in a sad, doubting, and questioning condition, and so making their life a hell, is by causing them to, to be still pouring, or focusing on, pouring and musing upon sin. To mind their sins more than their Savior. Yes, so to mind their sins as to forget, yes, to neglect their Savior. That as the psalmist speaks, the Lord is not in all their thoughts. Their eyes are so fixed upon their disease that they cannot see the remedy, though it be near, and they do, not muse, they do so muse upon their debts or their sins that they have neither mind nor heart to think of their surety, which is Christ. A Christian, now watch this, a Christian should wear Christ in his bosom as a flower of delight, for he is a whole paradise of delight. He who minds not Christ more than his sin can never be thankful and fruitful as he should be. Wear Christ as your delight 
as your joy, as your salvation, as Paul says in Corinthians, your righteousness, and you will be ready for a fruitful life. You will be ready for death if it sneaks up on you, and you will find it impossible not to talk about this gracious Savior named Jesus. To live is Christ. Let's pray. Lord, shape us by this truth of your gospel. Bless us as we dig into it through our study in Romans. Help us as we begin two weeks from now to address the bad news, which is the news we need to hear that sets the good news in context. But I pray for everyone listening to me in the building, everyone listening over the live stream, everyone who may listen to a recording, who knows, that if they be lost, that you would grant them repentance and faith, that they might turn and trust in Christ and Christ alone for salvation. And that all of us who are saved, that you would challenge and grow us through this message to find our joy and delight and purpose in you, to rest in the fullness and the freeness of your salvation, to have the joy and peace that you have purchased for us, and to be so delighted in Christ, not ashamed of Christ, that we will be bold for Jesus in the proclamation of His truth, His gospel. Save and sanctify your people. Bless us to lend ourselves and depend wholly upon your grace while living in dependence upon your power of the Holy Spirit to live a life that glorifies you both in word and deed with Christ at the center. Help us, Lord. We lean hard on you. We thank you for your truth and for your gospel. We thank you for your son. We thank you for such a rich and free salvation. And we ask it in the holy name of Jesus. Amen. Stand with me. Let's sing one more before we go home. The Solid Rock, 381.